Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this episode I'll be covering the brand new third issue of Black Canary from Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. Before diving into this month's review, though, I want to give a couple of shout-outs to other podcasts that I listen to, and I've been listening to a ton of podcasts lately. It's basically all I do. Anytime I'm not working or sleeping, I feel like I have a podcast on. Because the other shows that I produce, namely the Secret Origins podcast and Dead Boff and Spies, a Star Wars podcast, they have so many guest hosts from the blogging and podcasting community, I tend to listen to my guests' shows before we record in order to get a feel for their style, their rhythm, their likes and interests. Okay, mostly to find out if any of them are like super hardcore racists before I have them on to talk about a black superhero. The problem I keep running up against is that their podcasts are so good, I get drawn in, and now I'm subscribed to like 35 podcasts. I've mentioned it before, but I'm not great about leaving feedback on other people's shows, even when I listen to every episode and absolutely love them. I try to give them an iTunes review or a nice comment. It's so much easier to give them a like or a favorite on social media, but I want to try a little bit harder. So occasionally, on Flowers and Fishnets, I'm going to give shout-outs to my fellow podcasts and let my listeners know what shows I'm listening to and why I enjoy them. These won't be super long because, believe me, I really want to get to talking about Black Canary Issue 3. But bear with me for a second as I take you through a new segment called Ryan's Recommendations. The first show I want to mention is Radio vs. the Martians, hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. It's a panel show with a bunch of guests, and they talk about, well, everything from comic book superheroes, action movies, video games, pretty much any aspect of popular and geek culture that's worth talking about, Radio vs. the Martians can talk about it. And the show is hilarious. As they describe themselves, it's like the McLaughlin Group for nerds. In particular, episode 21, they discussed the David Lynch show Twin Peaks from the early 90s. That is one of my favorite TV shows. I love it. But it's so difficult to defend or explain why. The panel on Radio vs. the Martians touched on so many things that I like and hate about the show. The things that inspire and frustrate me. And it cracked me up constantly. I was laughing from Mike's opening descriptor and it didn't let up. The energy of that show, the way they riff and occasionally bounce off topic, it's very entertaining and a great listen. The other show I want to plug is the Pulp to Pixel podcast, hosted by Dr. G, the man of nerdology. This, like a lot of other podcasts, is a celebration of superheroes and other sci-fi and fantasy genre concepts from comics and digital media. 
At the time of this recording, Pulp to Pixel has released six shows, and they're part of a sub-series called Welcome to Astro City, where Dr. G and his co-host, Dead Robin, read and review the Astro City comics by Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross, and Brent Anderson. I read Astro City back in the mid-90s when it premiered, but I dropped it after a year. Well, listening to these guys cover the book rekindled my love for that series, so I went on Comixology and reread the first couple issues. Such a good choice. Amazing stories. If you like the superheroes of DC and Marvel but want to see a slightly different spin on those familiar tropes, check out Astro City. And listen to the Pulp to Pixel podcast after you do. The reviews are great. Dr. G and Dead Robin, they go into a lot of detail. They bring their own personal, professional, and cultural perspectives to the reviews. And that touch really makes it enjoyable to listen to and remember these great comics. I am really looking forward to where the show goes next with other topics they cover, and I'm really excited to talk to both Dr. G and Mike Gillis because I'm going to have them both on Secret Origins podcast in the future. So, those are the first Ryan's recommendations, Radio vs. the Martians and the Pulped Pixel Podcast. Check them out. And I'll be back in a minute with my review of Black Canary, Issue 3. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVersTheMartians.com. Black Canary 3, titled Speed of Life, is written by Brendan Fletcher with art by Annie Wu, colors by Lee Loffridge, letters by Steve Wands, Annie Wu drew the main cover, and Dave Bullock provided a variant. The book is edited by Dave Walgas, Chris Conroy, and Mark Doyle. We open with a splash page of Dinah in the moment before she opens her mouth to unleash the sonic waves building within. The image is split between Black Canary on stage performing in Keystone City and Dinah on the roof of her tour bus about to throw down in battle. Throughout the first half of the issue, we see a running battle on a highway between Dinah, her bandmates, and the Black Ops stormtroopers trying to capture Ditto. At the same time, the story occasionally cuts back to Black Canary's concert, and Fletcher and Wu use smart visual cues to segue between the different scenes. So anyway, Dinah unleashes her canary cry and just flattens a troop transport helicopter hovering over the tour bus. Three stormtroopers in black uniforms with stun batons show up on the roof of the bus and come at Dinah, and she has the best response. 
It's a close-up of her raising her fists and smiling, saying, I've already taken out two troop carriers and about five regiments of your best soldiers. You really think you stand a chance? I took a pic of this panel and tweeted it. Right now it's got 23 favorites and 12 retweets, so I think a handful of people agree with me that this is the best moment Black Canary has had in about 5, maybe 10 years. I'll get back to that moment in the analysis later. Heathcliff, the band's manager, sticks his head out and tells Dinah they're running late for their gig at Keystone, and if they don't make it on time, they'll lose their spot. Dinah assures Heathcliff they'll make the concert on time, even as she disarms and disables the stormtroopers on the bus. Her sweep of the soldiers is intercut with the concert performance, so I guess we know they do end up making it to Keystone. A few more stormtroopers ride up alongside the bus on motorcycles. One tries to take out the bus driver, a rough-hewn woman named Flo, but she grabs the rider and actually pulls him into the bus through her window. Lord Byron kicks the soldier unconscious, and Paloma takes his gun. We get some expository dialogue from the band members explaining they're fighting to protect their guitarist, Ditto, from the Black Ops goons who work for or with Dinah's ex-husband, Kurt Lance. While they're going over this, we see some of the black oil stuff from the goo monsters seeping in through the window at the back of the bus. Dinah does a stage dive and crowd surfs at the show, a moment that parallels her leaping off the bus and taking over one of the motorcycles. Paloma, who we learned last issue was a pretty badass markswoman, drops one of the other cyclists with the gun she took off the soldier inside the bus. Dinah pulls her motorcycle up beside a moving truck and jumps into the cab, where we see her husband, Kurt, is driving. He pulls a gun, but she disarms him and sticks the gun back in his face. Kurt tells her that his covert ops team is trying to capture Ditto to keep her safe from the monsters that are also hunting her because the monsters and Ditto come from the same world. Which is not Earth, in case that wasn't clear. Kurt tells Dinah that the monsters, which I guess we can now call aliens, are on the bus that very minute, and he challenges her to either kill him or let him help her keep Ditto safe. Dinah gets back on the motorcycle with Kurt riding bitch behind her. On the bus, Heathcliff and Lord Byron tie up the soldier and throw him in the bathroom, where he is quickly devoured by the black oil alien monster. The thing comes out, and Paloma unloads the gun on the alien, but the bullets just rip through its oily body and have no real effect. The situation looks dire, and Heathcliff calls her Pomaline, or Pomaline. Just before the alien kills them, Dinah and Kurt bust through the roof. Kurt tells the others to cover their ears, and Dinah unloads on the alien with her sonic scream. The attack knocks the alien out of the bus, where it splats against the grill of an oncoming vehicle. The band comes together to hug and thank Dinah for the save, and that's when the bus pulls into Keystone for their concert. After the show, Kurt reveals that Ditto was previously in government custody, that they did experiments on the child and used part of her alien physiology to play with the genes of certain military personnel, like Dinah and Kurt when they were on Team 7. Basically, this makes Ditto responsible for Dinah's powers, her sonic scream. We get a little bit of info I didn't know, which is that when Kurt came out of his coma, apparently he had no memory of Dinah. We see him reading her file and watching a video of the two of them on Team 7, which has a good continuity with her Team 7 costume, by the way. Nice job, Annie Wu, even though the costume sucks. Kurt says he wants to help Dinah keep Ditto safe, out of the hands of the same organization that sent him to recapture her. The point may be moot, however, because Ditto has been kidnapped by the end of the issue. Not by the soldiers, and not by the aliens, but by Bo Maeve, the former lead singer of Black Canary. That ends issue three, and I'll be right back with my review after this promo.
Welcome to Astro City, a Pulp to Pixel podcast, an issue-by-issue ratings and review of the creator-owned comic book series Astro City by the writer-artist team of Kurt Fusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com pulptopixel.tumblr.com through the iTunes store under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast webpage. Okay, I'm not even going to build up to it. This issue was awesome. Easily the best of the series. Which is only three issues, so that compliment doesn't really do it justice. This was the best Black Canary story, the best she has been depicted since the New 52 began. Wait, most of the New 52 Black Canary moments sucked. That also fails to capture what I'm thinking. This issue is Black Canary. Everything about her that I love is in this book. She kicks ass and she makes it look easy. She's sassy. She mouths off to the soldiers and monsters she's fighting. She's inspirational. Her band members fight with her and for her. She has lousy taste in men. She has this blind spot to men. She might be too trusting, even while she's shoving a gun against her ex-husband's eyeball. She's fearless in battle, whether she's fighting a platoon of soldiers in riot gear or alien monsters. She wears black leather and fishnet stockings. She rides a motorcycle. Her leather jacket has frills and fringe. I think the last time we saw something like that was way back in the very first issue of Birds of Prey, like the special. That was before Chuck Dixon put her in the new costume that I hate. Everything Dinah does in this story feels real. It feels natural. Brendan Fletcher gets the character. Everything she says or does feels like something Gail Simone would have had her say or do back in the old Birds of Prey. Or something Jerry Conway would have had her say or do in Justice League of America before that. It was... Uh, it was so refreshing to read this. Now, really quick, I do want to pause the love fest and address the one thing I did not like, and I'm doing that now because it's such a small element. The only thing I did not like about the story is that, once again, it's only 16-story pages. We get some nice two-page back matter in the form of more Burnside Tofu zine material, but the story is only 16 pages, and that, quite frankly, sucks. I talked to Brendan Fletcher about it. He told me that issues two and three were cut short and it wasn't by his design. It has more to do with DC corporate somehow. I didn't ask beyond that because I don't care. I'll pay full price for a 16-page issue twice. But after that, something's got to change. Fix this, DC. Fix this now. Otherwise, these podcast reviews are going to come out six months later than scheduled because I'm going to be waiting for the digital copy to be discounted. Okay, let's get back to what is good. I mentioned how I tweeted the moment where Dinah taunts her attackers, saying she's already trashed a couple of regiments and troop transports. It's so understated, but it also says everything. This is why Dinah is worthy of being part of the Justice League. Her legitimate superpower may be comparatively weak compared to Superman, Green Lantern, or The Flash. And no, she can't take Wonder Woman or even Batman in a fight. But she's still a warrior. She's one of the five best fighters in the world, and she can hold her own against an army with a smirk on her face. This moment, this do-you-really-think-you-stand-a-chance moment, it's the most black canary she's been in ten years. I really got a kick out of the situational irony when Heathcliff is worried about making it to the concert while people are trying to kill or capture them, too. 
From the first page, we see Dinah performing at Keystone. We don't see the other band members, but we presume that they do, in fact, make it to the gig on time. That foreknowledge does not kill the momentum of the chase, I don't think. Because the battle isn't really a cliffhanger. I know that Dinah's not in real danger. That doesn't take me out of the fight at all. In Captain America the Winter Soldier, which this fight on the bus kind of reminds me of at times because the Black Ops guys with their stun batons... I knew Cap wasn't going to get killed or captured when they ambushed him in the elevator. That didn't make the fight any less impressive. It made me appreciate how tough he is that those guys in the room weren't really that much of a challenge to him. The same holds true for Dinah in this fight. Whatever they throw at her isn't going to be enough. That doesn't kill the suspense. It actually adds to her street cred. The motorcycle bits are great. I wish they did a little bit more with that, but the daytime, washed-out, crowded highway setting of this scene reminded me of the new Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. I liked that movie. It didn't blow me away, but I thought it was entertaining from start to finish. My wife didn't care for it, but the one thing she really did like was the fact that Tom Cruise wore sunglasses during the motorcycle chase. My wife rides. She's a biker. It's one of the things I love about her. But nothing takes her out of a movie faster than when heroes on motorcycles don't wear eye protection. She says, I don't care if he is Captain America. If he gets a bug in his eye at 70 miles per hour, he's going down. So... I hope we get more scenes of Dinah riding in the future issues, but Brendan, Annie, if you're listening, maybe give her a helmet or shades. She'll still look tough, she'll still look sexy, and it sets a better example, you know, for the kids. So, after the concert, Dinah takes the time to meet and greet some of Black Canary's fans. It's a nice, quiet moment, but it shows that Dinah isn't a sullen, brooding character. She's not a loner. Dinah loves people. That's why she's always in teams or groups. That's why she has surrogate family members like Babs and Roy Harper and Sin. I know I'm talking about a previous continuity, but... Again, this feels like the creators of this comic get it. Dinah is a social creature. And then we get the scene with Kurt Lance, who is trying to convince her to trust him that he doesn't want to hurt Ditto. He wants to help them. There is no reason Dinah should trust him, but she probably does because, as I mentioned earlier, Dinah's kryptonite is the wrong kind of man. Doesn't matter what continuity we're in. I didn't read the end of the New 52 Birds of Prey, so I don't know the circumstances behind Kurt's resurrection, but we're told that he had amnesia and didn't remember his life with Dinah. We actually get a flash of him watching a video of their missions together on Team 7. But there is no indication of any feeling or memory in Kurt's eyes. Annie Wu draws really expressive faces, and there's a tight close-up of Kurt's eyes watching the video of his former wife. If there's any emotion there at all, and I'm not convinced that there is, it's the pain of this gap in his memory. Because of that, I'm not quite ready to trust Kurt yet. He has no reason not to betray Dinah and take Ditto back to his bosses. However, giving him the benefit of the doubt, which is what Dinah will surely do, I can understand how he might want to help Dinah as a way of forging that connection again. Maybe it will absolve him of the hurt and absence he left between them. Maybe it will re-spark the love that he used to feel for her, or maybe it will be enough to make them square and they can just walk away from each other with no more guilt or resentment. I don't know, but I'm curious. I'm borderline interested in where they take this part of Dinah's story, which is not something I thought I'd ever say about Kurt Lance. 
The last part of the story, we get the return of Bo Maeve. We met her back in issue two and were told that she was the lead singer before the record label fired her and replaced her with Dinah. She struck me as a petty, vengeful type. But now we get something much richer. Bo Maeve has a little bit of psychopath in her, and it's a dark, scary kind of psychopath. Because it's not like Batman villain crazy, it's stalker crazy. The first time we see her in this issue, she's outside Dinah's trailer, or whatever, eavesdropping on her conversation with Kurt. So Bo Maeve gets the story of who Ditto is and who wants her, and then she kidnaps Ditto. And my first thought is, okay, she's going to blackmail them, or she's going to trade Ditto to the Black Ops spooks or the aliens, whatever the usual play for money or power. But that does not seem to be Maeve's play at the end. She wants to be a star again, and she's going to use Ditto. This isn't about money or reward or even revenge. Maeve says she takes what she deserves, whether it's a sports car or a rock and roll band or an alien guitar player. At first, I didn't think much of her, but the psychology behind Bo Maeve is a lot more fascinating. She's jealous. She's covetous. She wants all the attention, all the glamour to be on her. If she sees a guy with a fancy car, she takes the car so people will be impressed by the fact that she's got the car. She kidnaps Ditto because everybody wants Ditto, and she has to have the thing that everybody wants. It validates her, and this is what makes her so dangerous. She is a true wild card, and I think she's going to be a bigger threat to Black Canary than the army or the alien sludge monsters. It's a great way to end the issue. And then, like I said, we get some back matter. Tanto Labiche, the writer for the music zine that's following Black Canary, actually brings up some interesting questions. What's up with the mysterious A&B record label that signed the band? Why did they want Dinah over Bo Maeve? Why are they putting them on this cross-country tour and fitting the bill even though every venue gets trashed? Who are the people in charge of this record label? There's a lot behind this pointing to a larger conspiracy involving Dinah and Ditto that really isn't reflected in the main book. You need to pay attention to this Burnside Tofu backup. It's interesting. I hope we see these questions answered. Anyway, yeah, I loved this story. Brendan Fletcher's characterization feels spot on for Dinah. The art by Annie Wu and Lee Lofridge is spectacular. I was really impressed with how the colors and poses segued from the tour bus chase scene to the concert performances pretty seamlessly. Wu doesn't seem like the typical action comic artist, but she absolutely nails the action beats in this issue. It feels like a summer action movie. And Dinah hasn't looked better in a while. She's got the fishnets, a choker, a black corset, and a leather jacket with freaking frills and fringe. It's so good. I wanted to get this review out earlier before people went to the comic store for the new comic book day. But if you get a chance to go back, pick up Black Canary issue 3. And, you know... 1 and 2 if you can find them. It's great stuff so far, and I'm looking forward to the next issue. The last couple episodes of Flowers and Fishnets have gotten Twitter likes from... Uh, like... Martin Gray, Ange, Diablo Frank, probably Trekker Talk, maybe some others. Uh, feedback for the last episode had Craig McDonald telling me I should read the new Dr. Fate while the Irredeemable Shag said I shouldn't. That's my very best friend in the whole world, Shag Kozlowski, by the way. 
Ange, who totally survived his meeting with me and Paul, said that he had a great time at Boston Comic-Con, and it shows because he got some great sketches and commissions. Ruth Sutherland and Chris Franklin also said the cons sounded great, although Chris chided me for foolishly considering my bladder and kidneys rather than mauling Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. And that does it for this episode of Flowers and Fishnets. There are a lot of things I want to do with this podcast coming up, but the timing isn't working out. Secret Origins podcast is killing me, and did any of you guys hear that there's a new Star Wars movie coming out? So I've got a lot of stuff in the wings for Dead, Bath, and Spies, my Star Wars podcast. That means, for the time being, Flowers and Fishnets is going to remain a monthly review of the current comic. But I don't mind, because I'm having so much fun reading Black Canary. I hope you are, too. If you enjoyed this show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01, or you can search the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.